Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Hello and welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I am here with clinical psychologist Tracy Hamanowski. I'm so excited I didn't throw that J in there. I want to throw the salt, the slow golf clap in there for you, Brock. Thanks. I'm telling you. Tracy, thank you for coming on today. Before we start, I just want to do a brief intro, let you know why we're here. I have received like a few different people in the community of law enforcement, first responders that have said you are an amazing individual. So thank you for the work you do in the first responder community as a psychologist. So there's a big golf clap there for you. I know that you are a clinical psychologist. You've served 11 years in the military, working with men and women who are battle-tested, which is really cool because we like to talk, like having people who are culturally competent when we have on. And so thank you for that. More than anything, I just want to thank the first responders out there who are getting their butts kicked. We thank you for it. We thank you for the veterans, the men and women who are uh, giving themselves. So that is uh, amazing for us to be able to talk about them. So thank you for that. You do work for some nonprofit organizations. You want to tell me about that just before we start? So Certainly. I uh, spent about, I guess it's going on the eighth year right now, working with Gratitude America, which is a nonprofit in the Northeast Florida and Georgia areas. And we put on restorative, relaxation, uh, recreational retreats for veterans and a primary support person or an active duty member and the primary support person. So we've had a really wonderful tenure spending some time with some amazing people who wanted to roll their sleeves up and put some and time and effort into healing themselves and bringing their primary support person in along on that on that journey. I was going to say last year in 2020, we started a first responder project. And that is a, a nonprofit aimed at first responders, also incorporating military to talk about the wear and tear of the job. I love that. Thank you for, for taking on this endeavor. I know right now the law enforcement community is not the most popular community out there. And I know that you have a huge job to do. I do have a question for you since you are a clinical psychologist. I want to ask you this, and I know it's kind of uh, it's a weighted question, but do you think that um, therapy, one-on-one sitting down face-to-face with you in your office is the most productive tool we got? Absolutely not for everyone. Absolutely not. Be the first person to say that. I think that when you work with people who color outside the lines for a living and do and live in extremists and, and work in extremists that you have to be very creative and work on the fly. I take, you know, certainly the foundational uh, education that I got from uh, my training and education, but certainly it has morphed in a whole different type of therapeutic process. So even for me, staying inside the box, the four walls of therapy uh, is sometimes very effective. Sometimes the conversation's pretty tenderhearted and profound, and that needs a, a sanctuary type safe place. And other times you need to get roll up your sleeves literally and figuratively and get to doing kinetic things and so that the therapy is almost incidental or metaphor based. So I appreciate that I was running a drug and alcohol recovery center. Okay. First three and a half years, we did all in classroom sessions, you know, and then I realized it's not working. And so what I did is we branched out and went into a more 
recreational therapy model, which took men and women like us, took them in the woods. We went and did hikes. And I noticed that as soon as we started getting them out of their element, they got more comfortable. They were more willing to talk. And especially if I could get them in a stressful situation, it would almost expose that behavior or that trauma. And then it gave us that opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I think there's something very natural and organic about being with people, one, in nature, one, outside the confines of time and, and expectations, and you know, certainly outside the hospital setting or any kind of institutionalized um, field, because most people work out in the field. That's the nature of their job. So if you put people in that environment and then you put them in a situation where they can, there's a challenge that they have a problem to solve that they need to, the inherent teamwork that kind of just happens, you know, and just add nature and it happens, that the impact is, again, incidental. It happens as it goes. I ran a program many years ago that was a three-week program. And on day one, it was a lot of housekeeping business and things that we had to get out of the way. And it was awkward and everyone was uncomfortable, even though they knew the facilitators. But the minute we got on an eco-challenge course the next day and there was hand-to-hand you know, arm to arm, you know, people falling upside down, almost fall that kind of just a touch of adversity or challenge. That's where when we sat on a bunch of, you know, tree stumps later on, it was exponential, you know, in terms of people's willingness to be real with one another, raw with one another. So it's, it's ever since then, I've been convinced. So what creates that? Is it the exposure to stress? Is it just taking me out of my element? Because here's what I think, Tracy, would be really cool. We know that first responders are in the battlefield all the time. I mean, there's a limited portion of time where there's no stress. How come we don't have people like you and I riding around in the police car with these guys and just talking to them? Uh, I can tell you that's what I'm doing right now, actually. It's a more of an embedded model with a local sheriff's office, and that's precisely what is happening. So it's interesting because from a traditional therapeutic standpoint, the conversation is interrupted. It's not face-to-face. It's, you know, cross, which I think decreases the pressure and allows for uh, open conversation because you're, there's not that, you know, intense eye contact and expectation, okay, what is the right answer here? And so it's conversational and it's more relaxed, but it also can be interrupted and potentially interrupted by something that can be very activating, maybe traumatic if it's, you know, that kind of call. It's been an interesting experience for me. And it's also very interesting for law enforcement, for example, or fire rescue, because you'll be mid-conversation. You know, you go out on a call and you come back and then you kind of have to look at each other and reset and figure out where you were. At the end of the day, it might not matter. You know, if, if you're doing that, you might be with one other person or a group of people. So the conversation is in a different direction anyway. But the more that you can talk about uh, the occupational wear and tear, just the nature of the beast and normalize it and use language that is uh, just more comfortable and, you know, curse and swear and, you know, and, and cut up in the middle of a conversation and, and use, you know, gallows humor. That's what just makes the flow happen. And then you kind of forget that, you know, you're working on something in particular. I think that, you know, it could also get in the way a little bit. You know, you can really kind of go down a rabbit hole if you get into some kind of conversation. So I think the onus is on the person, you know, sort of intervening to be cautious about that, you know, because you never really know where you're stepping. It's kind of like walking in a dark room, you know, and just putting your hands out and not really knowing where the, you know, the exits are, the off ramps. You made a comment that you like dealing with people who are coloring outside the lines with those who color inside. And so what do you mean by that? 
aren't most first responders people that color outside the lines? Yeah, absolutely. I've I've worked with civilians or you know folks who haven't been in uh, in a first responder or military occupation. So that was my reference point. Uh, I think that the rules of engagement, the TTPs, the SOP, whatever you know you care to, however you care to frame it, that there is a guideline. And then, as most people will tell you, in line of service of any type, that you know the best laid plan is put out, and then shots fired or you know the, the IED goes off or whatever the case may be, and you know, the, the great plan that we all had might go out the window or certainly you might have to go to different contingencies. I think the approach that you take with folks who think really far down the road and are thinking about all the alternatives, the conversation has to has to be flexible enough that it can do that too. I kind of joke with, you know, with law enforcement, it's like a mutual interrogation. You know, I'm, I'm very aware that there's a skill set that I as a provider has and as does the individual. So it's an interesting dynamic with trust, and that is essential. That has to happen. And there are ways to make that happen very easily if you're just cool and calm and, and easygoing about it, you know, as opposed to buttoned up and hiding behind a diagnostic manual. So there's kind of a filling out process. There's a level of trust that you're talking about, a level of confidence. I remember I, I've shared this before on my podcast. I won't go into the, to the major details, but I was in a shooting in 2002, and I had to go see a psychologist. And I remember it was the whole vibe, okay? It wasn't just him, but just looking at him and the way that he looked back at me and asked questions was annoying, right? It was annoying. And I'm already at, I'm already at a 10. This was like two or three days after my shooting, right? So I wish, and I say this a lot, I wish we could have developed a moment of trust with each other. Right. He came in, he had his clipboard. I remember him looking at it and he just started asking questions. And I felt it was super impersonal. Like he didn't care. He didn't care what I had to say. He was checking the boxes to make sure that I was either fit or not fit in his determination without knowing anything about exterior motives, exterior factors like what was happening at home? What did my last couple weeks been like in the police department? What was my, I mean, leading up to the event? Right. I mean, the shooting was was textbook. Right. All of us, there was more than one shooter. There was like eight shooters. Right. So obviously it was it was a justified if that many people are, are taken. But he didn't qualify himself to me. Right. And I think I would have felt way more comfortable had we had an opportunity even to go sit down and have a drink, a, a Pepsi. His office to me was super intimidating. It made me feel like I had to say the right thing. So he would check the right box so I could get back to work. It's essentially what you're going through is like a forensic evaluation. It wasn't a therapeutic interaction. And I think that's what's confusing that you walk in and you know right from the jump that that person is assessing you. You know, they're going to go right or left. They're going to say fit for duty, not fit for duty. And I think anytime that's looming overhead, it's next to impossible to establish rapport. Maybe to establish rapport for the benefit of the evaluator, but certainly not for the law enforcement officer. So. I think as mental health providers, we have to put that behind us. We, if we can't lead with our humanity, and essentially we're dealing with an issue that has to do with mortality, morality, humanity, inhumanity, injustice, if we can't just be a human being across from a human being, 
anybody can check boxes and everyone can, you know, just gun deck the form and, you know, and, and just get to some kind of conclusion. But as providers, we can either look good on paper or we can be good as human beings. And that too often gets lost. And I think particularly with veteran and first responder populations, it is paramount that you can just be you. That if you have to hide behind your, you know, alphabet soup after your name, or you have to be called doctor, or you're, you know, you're just too stuffy. As you know, first responders can vibe off of someone really quickly and they make assessments very quickly. It's You're trained to do that. You were, you were made that way. So I think it's naive for us to think that, well, just because we have some kind of status or we have some kind of plaque on the wall, that we are inherently trustworthy. Trustworthy for confidentiality, yes. Trustworthy with you know someone's pride or ego or fear of repercussion or things like that? Absolutely not. You know what else I felt really interesting that that I hope I hope we get to a level that we can fix is there was zero follow up with the psychologist with the department nobody as soon as I came back to work I was cleared for duty and in my mind I kept thinking I mean I'm still having nightmares right I'm still seeing myself pull this guy we pulled him out of the truck he's laying on the ground there he is his fa- he got shot in the face so that to me was even a little more difficult. There was a lot of blood and I'm thinking, man, but I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. Hey, guess what? I'm still waking up at night. I'm still having cold sweats. I can film palpitations. And even sometimes when I get like traffic stops at that time of night, it made me a little nervous. Right. And so when you start thinking, but there's no follow up and here I am, I'm just masking it. You know, and heck no, was I going to be the guy that raised his hand and said, hey, I'm freaking struggling over here. Could someone help me? Yeah, we still fall, even though a lot of us, you know, want to just push back on the medical model. You know, the way we see things, it's like there's there's something wrong with me. There's something, you know, something's wrong with you. Something's occurred to you. Something's happened in your life. And none of us can say that we go through our lives and our jobs in particular and not have the human being as part of that. So when you cross over the line of battle or you, or you go out on your patrol every night, there is a, a man or a woman on every call along with you. With it, we, There's the uniformed person and then there's the human being. And the human being is constantly taught and told to suppress, suppress, suppress all the time because emotion can get someone killed. And emotion can muddy up the waters for split second decisions. So yes, that's true that you have to compartmentalize the hell out of emotion, but we can't forget that it has to be dealt with at some point. It's part of our being, you know, if other that, if not, then we're, you know, artificially intelligent or we're a psychopath or we have, you know, there's some wiring that's off. So I think it's like the you know best kept secret that uh, we saw it and, you know, it revisits us. We have the, all these re-experiencing responses that are entirely normal and natural. But yeah, no one wants to kind of be like, I think this is kind of like haunting me a bit. And it's ticking me off that it's haunting me because all the other ones didn't haunt me. Now this one is, but now this one's daisy chaining to some other ones. Now I don't know which way's up, but if we can't speak openly about it and just call a spade a spade, then, you know, you've got your basketball underwater and you can't do anything else with your hands because you're just trying to keep all that, you know, under wraps, under pressure. Which causes a little bit of sloppiness at work right? Because now we're not sleeping. Now there's some sleep deprivation going on, you know? So there's a lot of problems. So, okay, doc, I got some questions for you, Tracy. You ready to go? I'm, I want to know, I want to talk about PTS, post-traumatic stress. Okay. It's popular. People talk about it. 
I want to throw this out here, and I want you to, in your professional opinion, tell me if I'm right or wrong. I don't mind if I'm wrong. But not everybody that has been on the battlefield, not everybody who has been in a shooting or who's responded to fatalities has PTSD. Correct. 100% agree. And there's a big difference between post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic injury. There's a, there's a lot. So if you don't mind, can you kind of qualify or, or help us understand on a layman's level what post-traumatic stress is? What does it look like? What are some of the signs we should be looking out for? It's not a singularity. It's not one thing. You can line 10 people up, expose them to the same exposure, stressor, whatever the case may be, event, and you're going to have 10 different responses. And that comes from where they come from, how they, you know, their upbringing, their, how they were trained, experiences good and bad that have happened in their life. So they have a lot of filters between my eye, my conscious brain, and whatever I'm seeing. And everybody's got different filters. So everybody's going to read it differently, respond to it differently. And no one needs to apologize for how they do that. I think there's this, again, that like machismo, the pride, the ego of like, I'm tough and I'm stoic. We got to throw that out of the window. You can be stoic as anything and, and be impacted by something and still fit for duty and still do the job. I've redeployed people who had pretty significant post-traumatic stress responses, but it wasn't in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever they were going. It was in Walmart and other places. So, so we would have that real life conversation about like, how do you think you're going to do, you know, like, are, can you get battle ready and go out? Oh, absolutely. Can you go back, you know, on patrol and be ready? Yeah. I can compartmentalize. Cause again, that's like the superpower that many people have. Cause if you didn't, you wouldn't be doing the job this long. You know, it just would have seeped into everything. So you've got post-traumatic stress that is more of a kind of a self-preservation, a little bit of a like a fear and anxiety-based type of thing. And again, nobody wants to admit that they're fearful. Most people get mad when they're fearful. You know, someone jumps around the corner, my kids jumps around the corner and scares me. I go from anxious to ticked off really quickly, you know, and it may be a little embarrassed, you know, especially if they're like laughing because I, you know, I felt like I jumped a mile. So I think it's natural for that to happen. And when you get to self-preservation, you know, when you're just doing a routine, you know, uh, traffic stop, but stuff has happened in the past, there would be something concerning if you didn't have a little bit of anxiety. There's a certain, there's like, a, I guess, a, a sweet spot of anxiety that you want to have because you want to think about the things that you have to do and be ready. If you're just kind of casually walking up, I mean, that, that would be strange. You wouldn't want any of, if you saw one of your guys doing that, you'd pull them aside and be like, what's up? So there's that fear self-preservation piece of it that's more of, you know, the anxiety-driven PTS. And sometimes that lasts for a, a shift. Sometimes that it goes dormant or doesn't even show up for a while, which really messes with people because then they're like, where the heck was it? And why is it here now? Sometimes it's not PTS at all. Sometimes it is, it's moral injury. It's, it's a transgression by ourselves, or maybe we could have done better or done something differently, that money morning quarterback, that what ifs and the if onlys. Uh, and sometimes it's transgression by someone else. And so it, it leads to trust issues. We either feel guilty or we're trying to redo in our mind what could have happened, all that kind of uh, stuff. And then there's soul burden, which is just exposure to the weight and the, the profoundness of tragedy and kind of like sharing a soulful space of someone who passes thinking about, you know, personalizing a little bit. What if that were my child? What if that were my significant person? And so there's, to me, there are three distinct things. And, and we don't really have, not that we need, but we don't have 
labels for those other two, other than what I'm just throwing out there, as many people have spoken about with the soul burden and moral injury. Um, but we off too oftentimes we just put it in this big PTS box and then that's thrown out in the media and it's like sometimes overused. It's reasonable to have nightmares. It's reasonable to have certain situations, symptoms or responses that would fall into that category of PTS, but it's transient and it's going to leave you, but it's just got a grip on you for a minute. And there's probably a reason for that. And we have to listen to ourselves and like work through it. You know, like when you go, you've got like a kink in your neck and you're just, you know, like your range of motions diminished and you can't really turn over. You got to turn your whole body and it's awkward. So you go to massage therapist, right? No one shames anybody for going to massage therapist, you know, and then they dig their thumb in there and they get in it. And it's like that feels so good pain, you know, where they're like, oh, I'm sure this will improve by tomorrow. But sometimes you got to work the knot out. We don't even blink at that kind of care, that kind of self-care, any kind of physical injury. We have this, I don't know, it's just our society, society in this country that we think there's this dotted line and this barrier between the chemicals that go on in our body and our brain. And, and so there's some kind of shame in the game of, you know, talking, having to work through that knot of, man, this is just in my chest, you know, it's sort of causing panic. Like I'm not a guy who panics. I'm not a gal who panics, but here I am hyperventilating a little bit, or here I am staring at the ceiling for two hours, or here I am having intrusive images, you know, that's just, to me, that's just a response. And yeah, it needs tending to, just like if you've got a pain in your body, we just don't need to put all this stress into uh, this means that something's wrong with me. Okay. So you said there's more PTSD than meets the eye. Talk to me about it. I think that there is we can get triggered by something. So we get exposed to something that happened, whether it be in our early life or in our uh, line of work. And that's going to impact us in a certain way. It might change the way we think. We might get, you know, when the broadband of experience, you know, has gone out and sometimes the emotional experience draws back in, which is really tough for families, by the way, because they just get, you know, this flip switch of a personality and what they really want and what kids really need is a dimmer switch. Uh, you know, extended family, everybody wants you to be on a dimmer switch, but it's really difficult to change. You know, imagine like changing your outlet every time you come in the door. That's really what's necessary in a lot of times. And without that, you know, the line of service personnel will, will kind of present as cold hearted, which, you know, and people hear that all the time, you know, that's like that social model. Like, here's your diagnosis. This is what's wrong with you. Here's society's impression is you're crazy and effed up and, you know, you got all sorts of problems. And instead, what's going on is you're trying to mitigate, you know, taking the brain that is fight, flight, you know, not so much flight, but just, you know, like having to assess and make, you know, instantaneous decisions, but it's always go or no go. There's no room for wishy-washy. There's no room for hesitation. And you put, you know, you walk through the threshold of your home and you're either having to interact with people who are rolling up and down the continuum of trauma, you know, very little trauma, but maybe lots of drama or turning on the TV or hearing the news and it has to do with, with emotional bandwidth, tolerance of being able to appreciate that other people haven't walked through your shoes or boots that day, so they don't get it. And we can't really expect them to put up with, you know, what they get all the time. You know, you don't want to take the microchip out of your brain and put it in theirs. It would be nice if they, they could just kind of get it or if they could, you know, put their thumb on your pulse and, and figure out all that's going on with you. But half the time, a person can't do that. So how can we expect our loved one to mind read? But it's more than just these, you know, reacting to loud noises or feeling, you know, having uh, nightmares or that type of thing. It, I feel like it permeates the self. Our personality can change. Our priorities change. 
it's a whole paradigm shift sometimes going to and from or the way we think about punishment, the way we uh, feel pride in things, the way we care or don't care. The irony to me is that a lot of times veterans and first responders will be accused of not caring and being you know, cold and distanced and aloof. And it's such the opposite. I believe that these are people who would take the shirt off their back, would run into danger, you know, to go where everyone else is not going, even though they're exhausted, they're tired, they're weary, they're kind of over it, you know, but there's still this compelling feeling to help the very people that drive you nuts, to help people who got themselves into that mess in the first place. So, you know, it's just this override that happens, which is remarkable. And it's sad to me that that's so often first responders are misinterpreted, you know, for what's really going on that wormhole that I mentioned a minute ago, it's, you know, there can be a slight, just an interpersonal slight, no big deal, but someone kind of just blows you off or whatever. And it can wormhole down to grief and loss from something that happened. The loss of, of perspective. If you only knew how bad it could be, if you only knew what people go through, if you only know what I've been through, you know, in just one shift, let alone a career, you know, you'd have more compassion for me. But I don't want your compassion because I'm stoic. You know, it's like it's this fight within, it's this fight between, you know, the struggle. The problem is no one's talking, you know, that it's hard to put words to it. How do we open up this conversation? Because I know that there takes some as a police officer, first responder, there's an incident that happens and we try to take the whole picture. There's a story that I share where a dad rolls over on his baby. Dad was asleep, rolled over, baby was face down, kills the baby, brings it out. And I wanted that whole scene. It was mine, right? I didn't save the baby. The baby died. I still feel guilt. I felt shame. I felt like, man, I could have done more. But I, I had to step back and understand. I had, to, I had to have a gentleman explain that to me, that I could only take my part of that. You know, from the time the baby got put in my arms and I did CPR, that was mine to own, right? But the whole situation before that was not mine, but I wanted to own it. So that ability to separate those are so important for us. You put it very well. I think that there is, I heard you say could, and the words that we use are so important. And I sometimes I'll get heat from people I work with. They're like, man, you're listening to every word that comes out of my mouth. I'm like, yeah, I absolutely am because... It matters what you say because that determines what you feel. So if I said uh, I should have done something or I shouldn't have done this, that instantly says to me guilt, right? There's something's telling you that you should. I don't know where it comes from, your training, you know, different experiences in your life, but that's a very damning word. And so we're already in a down position. So it goes from, you know, I should have done something to I could have done something, you know, Monday morning quarterback, had I had all the information, had all these other variables fallen out in different ways, I could have. There's truth to that, maybe, you know, that may be a reality-based thought. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes down to, I wish to God I had been able to. I wish circumstances had been different. I wish, and you could think about all the pieces of that causal chain, all the dominoes in that string that you don't have control over. But at the end of the day, you want to own it because you don't want any more tragedy. You don't want any more threat. You don't want any more sorrow and grief unnecessarily because that is the heart that you have. You don't want it on you anymore. You don't want it on other people. And that powerlessness of rolling up on a, a scene that that fate or that outcome was determined before you got there is so such a disabling feeling. And to someone who wants to put their hands on things and, and heal and, and protect I think that's something that is underestimated significantly 
And it makes us angry. And it's one of the main reasons we get angry is to feel powerless and out of control. So to shift from, I should have been there to, I desperately would, I would give, I can't tell you what I would give to rewind that scene and rewrite it, you know, and be there, whether it's me or anybody else, or just have it not happen. And to not be able to affect that kind of change when you are the agent of change by your very nature is like just getting the rug pulled from out from underneath you. And I think that's part of that soul burden. I don't think that's post-traumatic stress. I think it's just weighs on your heart and soul as a human being, as a, maybe as a parent, you know, or whatever the different hats that you wear. Okay. So how do we know we're healing? How do we know that we're going through, we're on the other side of it and we're improving? So I think that the more bandwidth you have, the more emotional expression you can put out on the table, the more risk you can take, the willingness to tear up and own it. I mean, there's nothing in my mind. I'm not a person who likes to cry in front of other people. I hate it. I mean, I will dig a hole and crawl in it and, you know, and I would rather not do that. I know that feeling. It's this very self-conscious feeling. And I know that's also not a healthy feeling because I know that when I see people like that, I have nothing but compassion for them. I'm actually quite relieved when people express emotion because I, that to me is a sign of healing. Someone asked me once, how do you listen to people's trauma all day? And how does it, you know, how does it not overwhelm you? And I said, the over, the stressful part of my job is when people can't express it. You could be a puddle on the floor in the office or in the, in the patrol car, wherever. And I am as calm as can be because I know that you're letting your humanity out and you're just putting all the stigma and the, you know, the, the personal stigma and the institutional stigma and all that and devil may care. It's out. And emotion is energy and it wants out of our body and it wants to be expressed. When people can do that, maybe it's in the shower, maybe it's in the car, maybe it's, you know, in the woods, whatever. But once it gets on the outside of you, because trauma is meant to be shared and carried by each other, that's just how we're wired, then that process can begin. When people are sitting there and they're looking at me and I could see emotion just like right behind their teeth and they're just like, I do not want to pull I don't want the floodgates to open. I don't trust that I'll, you know, get back to where I need to be. I feel it. I can feel it on my chest. It's like this weird neural Wi-Fi and this, you know, this vibe. And I know that at some point it'll happen because they've trusted themselves to go up to the, the threshold. And when it does, I hope to be there, you know, or I hope that somebody is there for them. So when we can, I think healing starts when we can acknowledge it, we can kind of start to identify what the heck is going on, like sort through that box of compartments or, you know, tip them out on the table and start figuring out, okay, what's the mortality stuff? What's the injustice stuff? How many tick marks do I have in these boxes um, of these themes of powerlessness, of grief, of loss, of, of threat, you know, if near misses close calls, then, you know, you can start to chip away at it, you know, and then you notice like, okay, so I have more patience. I'm sleeping a little bit better. Those are not unrelated, of course. I find that my emotions are not 180 degrees out. I can feel sad sitting at you know a place where other people are sad, and I can be stoic when I need to. And stoicism doesn't go away. You can have post-traumatic stress all day long, and you can still be stoic. It's we do this either um, this either or thing way too much. Instead, we need to be like this and that. Yeah, you can be kick ass and take names and have nightmares. You know, you could be those things, both those things. It just means that you're the man in the arena, the woman in the arena, you know, as that beautiful quote is, and you're going to be, if you have a compassionate heart, it's going to get stomped on. It's going to get wrung out. It's going to get bruised as all get out. And you need to check that at some point. Like we're not invincible, you know? So our humanity is what 
can save us. And it's also what can, you know, can bury us if we're not careful. Okay, Tracy. So we're going to wrap this up. You're going to, you have a chance to say something to these wonderful listeners. What would be a piece of advice that you would like to give them at this time? Okay. So I'll take this, I'll personalize it. You know, being a therapist is not being a first responder. I think of it sometimes as like a secondary tertiary responder, but there is a stoicism that comes with that too. And it takes a lot of courage to do a once over on yourself. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to say like, yeah, something's up. I need to sort through it. I am scared to death of doing it. I don't know what's going to happen. To find a person you can do that with, to be real and raw and honest, it does not have to be a mental health person. It should be someone who's in a pretty healthy space, you know, who's going to, who's going to kind of call you out and, you know, and call BS, you know, if you're trying to get away with you know, blind yourself or, you know, to other people, but it's really important to be able to do like an, an internal evaluation of where you are. If you're worn out, if you just hate going to work, whatever the case may be, find an outlet. It doesn't, you know, obviously there's a ton of escapism behaviors that, you know, we could have a whole nother talk about are the things that are healthy and not healthy and are the things that the ways that we try to get out of our brain and just, uh, into release. There are certain things that we have to reconcile. There are certain things that we have to forgive in ourselves and others. There are certain things that we have to release. And if that is in a symbolic way or a metaphorical way, or it's in therapy or it's at the grave site or whatever is going on, we have to get creative. We have to find someone who's willing to walk that walk with us and toss the ones who aren't. You know, it doesn't mean you have to toss them out of your life, but just know who your people are. You know, your 3 a.m. column, no matter what people that you don't feel bad about, you know, contacting. And I, my message, I guess the bottom line would be consider also that you are paying it forward. If you're willing to say trading time out, holy cow, I need to just take a minute and sort through this thing, or I need to talk about this. You are implicitly or explicitly giving other people permission to do the same. And I think that's just something that people don't think about that you have, like, just like mental health providers kind of have an obligation not to screw it up. I might not be someone's cup of tea. I might not be the right vibe for them, but I have a responsibility to not turn them off to any kind of treatment. I want to make sure that I get them in the right hands and good hands and follow through with it. Much like as first responders, as veterans, I don't want to say a responsibility, like put too much pressure on people, but there's an opportunity to be able to show people that, hey, you can say this out loud. You know, it's PTS, it's not STD. You don't have to tiptoe around. We don't have to whisper it. We don't have to go into a corner. But when you talk about it openly, you are giving other people, you're taking one more layer of stigma away. Maybe that's the last hurdle between them and seeking some kind of help, whether it's working with horses, whether it's whatever that therapeutic intervention is, just starting that conversation. You'll have no idea how you might save someone's life in that way. So I think it's really important to consider that not only is it good to be able to, and really healing, and it can buy you more bandwidth, and it can buy you more time on your job to, you know, reconcile or release or whatever you need to do. But I really want first responders and veterans to also consider that part of your line of work is that you always have each other's back, that you always check out who's, you know, flanking you and you look out for each other. That's the beauty of your community. And part of being able to pay it forward and to help each other out is to be able to say something openly, just shout it out, just, you know, not make fun of it, not make blow it off, but be able to say, yeah, that calls bothered me, man. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's the 20th call. Maybe it's just because of this, but 
I got to work through it. I got to get my thumb in the, in the knot and work through it. And what you're doing is you are giving other people permission. You're taking away the hurdles. You're taking away that one more layer of stigma between them and being able to push it past their teeth. And you never know whether or not that's going to save someone's life. That's my call to arms, I guess, is to consider that if you can do it and, and have that courage to do it, uh, it's not just about you know encouraging someone else to go, but walk the walk you know, if you're going to do it and show them that it's okay, because that is worth its weight in gold. Tracy, I love that. That is the most, I can back that. I get behind that 100% where we have to help each other. We got to be able to, someone's got to have a voice somewhere and, and why not us, right? So Tracy, we appreciate your time. Can you tell me how we can get a hold of you? If there's a listener that says, I love Tracy, Hemanowski's vibe. I need to get a hold of her. How do they get a hold of you? You can get a hold of me a couple of different ways. Certainly uh, through the uh, the nonprofit. It's uh, firstresponderproject.org. My email is tracy at firstresponderproject. And you know our information is on there. You can reach us that way. We have a field journal, um, essentially kind of like a blog, but a field journal. If you'd like to write in, we've got a newsletter. We want stories from people of struggle, of, of of survival, of everything in between, certainly reach out. You can also reach me at Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y dot H-E-J at gmail.com. I'm going to be happy to, to talk with you and, you know, to see where, what you need and how we can help. Excellent. Tracy, you're amazing. Thank you for coming on the Chase the Vase podcast. We've been absolutely blessed by you. And I hope that there's a lot of men and women out there who are understanding that they can get through it. Not over it or around it. They just got to get through it. So thank you for your time. My pleasure, Brock. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Stay safe. You've been listening to Chase the Vase podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.